I'm Aria Schwartz, and welcome to the Windsider Show, where it's all about the W. Today, we're talking the WNBA Finals. Specifically, we're talking about key players. If you like our show, please consider joining our Patreon community. For less than a cup of coffee a month, you can directly show support for the hard work we do covering the W. This episode, we have a special guest, Alex Bazell, MBA and WNBA skills coach. And uh, he's going to help talk to us about specifics and some details of the key players in the 2019 WNBA Finals. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join us. Of course. Thanks for having me. So, Alex, you have one of the more interesting stories uh, surrounding the league. So why don't you tell the folks kind of who you are and uh, why people should know your name? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I don't know if anyone should know my name, but yeah, you know, I I played from a young age, like anyone who who loves basketball. Uh, I grew up around it. You know, my my dad put a ball in my hands at a young age. I had older siblings that played, so I was just naturally around the game quite a bit. I played in college, played at a low division one in Kansas City, transferred to division two. And then after that, I played uh, overseas in Germany uh, for one season. And then, you know, I came back home and that's kind of when, you know, personal training became more of a thing and individualized sports became a thing. Um, You know, growing up, uh, it was more about just playing as many sports as possible, which I still believe in that philosophy, quite honestly. Um, But now it's, it's, taken more of a trend towards getting your kid into one sport at a younger age and, and making sure they develop their skills um, as, as quickly as possible. So uh, it, it's kind of like right place, right time in terms of making it a career for me. Um, but yeah, I came home and, and there were a lot of, of local kids that, you know, wanted to train. So I actually planned on just training, you know, some kids here in St. Louis and then training myself to go back overseas Uh, I got back in April from my overseas season and then uh, things just kind of like took off and you know it it didn't make sense for me financially uh, to go back overseas Um, and then you know I knew I wanted to to train at a at a high level as high as I could so I figured if I started at a younger age I could maybe get to my goals a little bit quicker um, so that was back in 2014. Um, so now fast forward five years later, um, you know, I, I built up my clientele to where this summer I had 19 NBA guys come through. Uh, and then I work primarily with, with three WNBA players, um, you know, quite a bit. Uh, Candace Parker being one of them, uh, Gabby Williams being the other, and then you know, Nafisa Collier, who I actually date, uh, being the third one. So um, it, it's just been kind of a whirlwind I never thought I would get to to this point as quickly as possible but uh it's it's been a really fun ride well you also I mean not to put you you know in the spotlight or ever but people might have recognized your your face uh from during all-star weekend anytime someone was saying hi to Kobe and his daughter you were getting a little you were getting some <laughs> daps also so you might be you might be also tagging along or working with one of the biggest names in middle school 
is it yeah. middle like middle yeah. school basketball which is a crazy i mean that's amazing for the women's game that like someone who's that young is getting the type of attention she's getting obviously the connections to her dad but i have to ask like it's it's like no shade to you or anything but it almost sounds crazy to be like this guy's working with kobe's daughter on basketball right right no it's it's very odd i mean so to give you an idea you know growing up and Kobe was the guy I looked up to all the time. Um, so I was always watching Lakers games. It was always him and Steve Nash were kind of like the two guys I always followed in the league. And then at one point, um, it was a huge rivalry of the Suns and the Lakers. So you kind of had to make a choice. You couldn't cheer for them both. So I, you know, I chose Kobe and I kind of stuck with him. I wore 24. Um, and it was just very odd because, so, you know, I met him, uh, I guess it was two years ago now. Um, you know, Nafisa was in town. I was in LA. Uh, I, all my NBA guys go out there for the summer. So I spend my whole, you know, NBA off season out there. Um, so she had come in town and this was going into her senior year at UConn and she was just training and, and, you know, Kobe actually hit her up to come down and, and work out in front of his girls team. So he actually coaches the entire seventh grade girls team. Um, so we went down there she worked out in front of them. Um, you know, of course she, she did great. And then we had a long conversation afterwards with Kobe and I kind of thought that would be it. Um, and then I get a call about a month and a half later from a number that I didn't know. And I usually don't ever answer the numbers that I don't know on my phone. So I just kind of let him go to voicemail and and see who it is later. Uh, it just so happened to be Kobe. Um, so, you know, he shot me a text shortly after like, Hey, this is Kobe hit me up. (laughs) So. Uh, I texted Nafisa because she had his number. I was like, hey, is this, you know, who I hope it is? <laughs> is like, someone yeah. pulling a prank on me? Right. But yeah, that's that's him. So I gave him a call and, you know, he's like, I want you to come down and, and work out my girls uh, for this weekend. So I went down there and worked him out. And you know, I've been working with him consistently ever since. So it is strange because, you know, in my opinion, I think Kobe is probably the most skilled player to ever play. Um but it's like anything else as a parent, I think he understands. And as a coach, he understands that sometimes they just need a different voice. It doesn't matter how much, you know, um, at some point you have, he has to be able to just be dad, right? He can't be, he can't be everything for Gigi. Um, so I think he's done, you know, a great job with, with knowing exactly, you know, how much to help and how much just to, to sit back and enjoy it and be dad and be there for when she needs it. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with you. I mean, I don't think if my parents were, were even, I don't care what they're skilled in. I think everyone can kind of hear what you're saying and, and appreciate that. Uh, let's flip it over back to the W though, real quick. So obviously uh, at the time of this recording and by the time we publish it, it will be right before game four, the finals where DC has a chance to steal or not steal, but run away with their first WNBA championship. Uh, both teams are star studded, but uh, first of all, from your perspective, as somebody who works with some of the biggest names, you know, older names and up and coming names in the W, what trends are you seeing from this, from these finals and, and what things, you know, are kind of when you're watching, you're going, oh, this is something that I need to incorporate when we're doing off season workouts or whatever with the WNBA clients that you have. Well, I think it's, you know, basketball ever since. Golden State went on that that big run. I think you're seeing more small ball where you know the fours and the fives in the league are more than capable to putting the ball on the floor, 
stretching the floor, knocking down threes consistently. Um, and I think you see that with, with both teams, actually, in this finals. It's, it's all five on the court are usually capable of, of stepping out and shooting a three. You know, you have a couple exceptions like Alyssa Thomas, who has two torn labrums. Obviously, she can't, you know, step back there and, and let it fly. But, you know, almost everyone else who's who's coming into the game is a big threat to knock down a three. So it spaces the floor. Um, it creates opportunities and disadvantages that the offense can kind of put pressure on the defense. So, you know, as a skills trainer, I just look for, for little little points of, have emphasis in, in where these actions are coming from on the floor and how I can constantly put my players in those actions and then work on different moves out of them. Well, a perfect example of what you're talking about is Emma Mieseman or Emma Threesemen, as they're calling her now right. during these playoffs. Um, I mean, first things first, I don't think anybody who watches basketball or who paid attention to game three can get the the three plays at the beginning of the fourth quarter out of their head. Um, I know I sent you the videos of it. And to me, the thing is like when we talk about defense and, and locking down, you know, you have obviously Christy Tolliver and Emma Miesemann are the two options of this play. And either one of those from beyond the arc, even with a hand in their face, is scary. Obviously, Christy. Right. Christy, I feel like it's almost like you don't put a hand in her face because she lives for that. Like she wants you to put a hand in her face so she can kind of give you that look afterwards. Like that ain't going to stop me. Um, (laughs) But what can you do? I mean, like I was saying, like we hear a lot about go over the pick. But if you look at at Positive Residual put out a tweet that had the video of those three plays uh, played right after each other. And if you note, Jasmine Thomas, who's one of the top defenders in these finals and in this league, goes above goes below and it and it doesn't seem like there is an easy solution of what you're supposed to do there so right. for us stupid basketball people who are sitting here and yelling at the tv saying we'll just go over the pick we hear about that and stop like talk to me a little bit about like why that's so difficult to stop and something maybe that you saw that someone could do better to stop well i think it's it's more difficult for connecticut to stop because uh john quell is a natural rim protector, right? So her first instinct isn't get out there, you know, hug the screener, make sure she doesn't have space to pop, uh, which is what Miesman did in those first three possessions. She's, you know, her natural instinct is I got to pop back on this ball screen, make sure I don't give away layups. You know, her shot blocking is one of the biggest part of her games and is what made Connecticut so good defensively is, is it allows the guards to put so much pressure on the ball because they know they have someone like John Quill behind to kind of, you know, make up for their mistakes. Um, but with Miesman in there and then, you know, Elena in there, the floor is so stretched to where it puts John Quellen kind of a bind that she, that she has to kind of go against what's what's natural for her. So I think, you know, there's a couple options of what you do. Obviously, you have to, you know, John Quell's just got to get in her mind. She's just got to hug it and then just allow it. It's more on, on the person that's guarding um, Tolliver that she's got to get through the screen because she's not going to have hardly any help or any hedge or you just go ahead and blitz it or you double the screen to, to kind of get the ball out of their hands to where you know Meesman doesn't have time to really pop in space to where Tolliver's kind of got to get it away as soon as she can so um, that's you know that's what I've seen the most with those ball screens. Well talk to me briefly I mean one of the things that a lot of people will will comment on is Obviously, there's differences between Elena Deladon and Emma Miesemann's game. 
But it, in my mind, they kind of fit similar roles to a certain extent. And that's why it's so poisonous to other teams when you have both of them out there because you know, they both have what we've been talking about, that ability to stretch the floor, pull out from behind the arc and hit the three. And when you have, you know, obviously some smalls that are able to do that, but also bigs. Talk to me a little bit about the differences of Emma and Elena Deladon's games. Um, you know what? It's, it is crazy because, you know, people, we talk about Elena's year of 50-40-90. Emma actually did 50-40-90 also. She just didn't qualify for the amount of games because she came over late from overseas. Um, so, you know, I think their games are extremely similar. Now, I think Elena, you know, puts more pressure, um, you know, she, she can kind of put more pressure in terms of on the ball, what she can do with it. Now, uh, you know, Meesman's very, very skilled with the ball also. Um, uh, but I think Elena, it's, it's just that ability, that first step is just a little bit quicker. So, you know, a lot of times you see Elena when she's catching, she's naturally, they're closing out hard because she's such a great shooter. Same with Niesman, but um, Elena's first step going left, especially, um, is is just a killer for people. And she actually has the ability to get in the lane and, and hang. She usually double pumps on a lot of finishes. So she's with her length at 6'4", she jumps. And even if they time to jump right, she can hang and have the ability to kind of finish around them, um, which makes her unique in that instance. So, uh, I think everything else, they're very, very similar. I think, you know, I've, I think I put a tweet out maybe a month and a half ago um, about Emma being the most underrated player in, in the WNBA. Um, and I think it's it's because she is so similar to, to Elena, but Elena's getting, you know, all all the attention and rightfully so. I mean, she was, I think she should have been unanimous MVP, but um, I think Emma, you know, is is all-star caliber level. Oh, I completely agree. But but you, you said something that, that was going to be my next question. Can you talk a little bit about Emma's off-ball movement? Because what I know, I was I was live in Connecticut, um, based in D.C., but I was live in Connecticut for Game 3. And I, one of the things I was amazed of, even though I have to throw some shit, I was sitting like basically in the rafters is where they had <laughs> the, the flow over. So maybe my views weren't the greatest. But the way that she moves off the ball and and – one of the things that I think we've all noticed with Washington is it's very clear when they're, if you want to call it shook or whatever it is, when that offense gets stagnant and slows down and you kind of have more of those Christy Tolliver, let me dribble in circles for a little bit and chuck up a shot. Right. It, it's very frustrating. And that's when the team really starts to struggle. But what Emma was doing this game was even, I mean, really there was only a two minutes uh, spread in the end of the first half when, when Connecticut really pushed the, the envelope, but Emma's ability to move off ball was just really impressive to me, even though I've watched her all season long do it. But her ability to do that, to keep the motion moving in this offense, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I think for any player that wants to be a great scorer or be a consistent scorer, off the ball movement is probably the biggest part of, of doing that. And, uh, you know, at a young age in basketball, your coach is always telling you, you got to move without the ball. You got to, you got to cut, you got to screen. But um, the great players know timing of all that because that's the most important part. You're not just moving to move. You're moving in certain ways and you're moving at certain angles that are important. So for instance, when Emma's off the ball, she has the unique ability to time exactly when her defender gets caught watching the ball too much and she runs right off her back and she can get a post seal or she can maybe get an offensive rebound. Um, those are all huge. And, and those are 
a big part of, of what makes Emma so successful. I, I completely agree. It's, it's, it's scary to watch what she does and it almost looks methodical. I mean, well, it is methodical, right. um, but let, let's flip it over to Connecticut's side of the ball. Um, John Quell Jones, we've talked about her defense and how she's a natural born rim protector. We've talked about her ability to, you know, do so many different things, but I want you to talk to me a little bit of her offensively. We saw game one, they weren't really able to get her the ball. Game two, it became a high priority to get John Quell the ball in the low block in various other ways. And it looked like, obviously, you know, Deladon goes out with that back injury. So the paint clears up a little bit for JJ. But talk to me, A, what you're seeing has been working for them and, and kind of what they can do to get her more involved. Because game three, I mean, she was MIA for most of the game. Right. Yeah, it was it was interesting because game three, I think, I don't even know if she attempted a shot in the first quarter. She maybe got one. Um, so, and that's I think she was like zero for two from three in the first half, or something like right, that. Right. So, and and those were kind of forced in towards the end of the half because she was. I think she was frustrated that she wasn't, you know, getting her touches. Um, so I think you know, with with her, you know, the game she won, she got twenty four shot attempts. Now. You're not you're not saying that need, she needs to shoot that many. She got nine offensive rebounds, and a lot of those were stiff stick back. Um, but I think it, it it's two things. It's one um, in that second game, the guards were attacking, looking to score, and when that happens, her defender um, has to slide over and try to help, or try to get a block, or try to get a charge, and that opens up these offensive rebounds. I think last game they were caught shooting too many mid range pull-ups that were contested or too many long threes. Um, so then it, it kind of negated her offensive rebound ability. Um, but yeah, I, I think that even in the second half to start last game, you know, they threw it right into her. She actually got tipped on a block, but got the rebound and then got an and one out of it. Um, and then, you know, a couple plays later, got another bucket. And then, you know, again, then she went on kind of a cold streak of, of not getting the ball. So, you know, those were three shot attempts that she had of her eight within the first two minutes of the second half. And it, you know, it, it gained some momentum for them and then they kind of went away from it again. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's on, you know, obviously your guards have to make an emphasis to get your best player the ball. You know, it starts with your point guard and goes to your, your next leader, which is probably Alyssa Thomas. Um, you know, they have to make an emphasis to get John Quell her touches because, you know, when she's more engaged in the game, it helps the energy level and, and on defense just as much as offense. Um, so that, and then also John Quell's got to demand the ball a little bit too. So it's it's a two way street. You gotta you gotta have the guards that are willing to get you the ball, and then you gotta, you know, at, at some point you have to pull everyone together and say, hey, I need the ball. <laughs> you know, I have a mismatch down here. You guys need to get me the ball and get me, you know, give me the ball in time. You know, at some point as a leader you have to be willing to to say things that are a little uncomfortable at the times if you want to complete the task that you want to complete so um you know that I, that's what i've been seeing the most um because you know when when you're not getting her the touches in game one she had eight shot attempts in game three she had eight shot attempts so um and and those are the two games that you lost so i i think that you know the the blueprint is there but she's the, the only issue is with john quell is She's not a player that you're going to just roll the ball to and get out of the way. Now she, I think she's skilled, but when she struggles, it's when she's catching the ball about eight feet from the rim with her back to the basket. Um, 
but when you can get her a touch like a high low to where she's already got the advantage or like her her offensive footbacks or even setting a, a screen to get her a little advantage in the post that's when she's at her best because she's so physically imposing and long when she gets that advantage you can't really make it up well, that was something I wanted to ask. You know, obviously, Emma and John Quell are, you know, comparing the bigs on these teams. They're very different style bigs. They have similarities, but they're very different. But something that I can't help but ask, and I, and I want your insight on this, is, you know, watching the game, you see these, like, constant, you know, pick and rolls at the top of the key between Emma and Christy. Why isn't that? Can you give us a little insight on why you think maybe based on skill set or, or whatever it is, you know, like fans are asking me, they're, they're DMing me, they're asking me, well, why are, why doesn't Connecticut run that same play? John Quell can hit the three. Obviously, she's maybe not high as percentage as Emma, but John Quell has that ability to stretch it. So, like, what what are the positives, the negatives of using her skill set in that way, I guess? Well, I think that, you know, with with Alyssa out there, I think Alyssa is a, a much better um, playmaker. Um, than John Quell in terms of if you want someone setting a ball screen and rolling. Um, when you get her the ball at the top of the key with space, Alyssa's proven to be a handful. Same thing in transition. When she when she gets the ball in space, there it's hard to argue that there's been anyone better in this finals than her. Um, so I think getting her those touches are still important. And I think, you know, John Quell, it's, it's more about just, again, getting her the ball in, in – uh, in a place that makes her comfortable. Now, you know, Kurt's a, Kurt's a great coach, so I, I'm sure they've worked on that, and that's, that's the hard thing as a normal fan when you're not there at practice every day or you're not there at training camp. Um, you know, he, he sees where she's comfortable catching the ball, and I'm sure they've tried that out, and I, they've probably decided, hey, when we can get her the ball in these spots, that's when she's at her best. Same with Alyssa. When we get the ball to her in these spots, that's when we're at her best. So you have to be careful because, when you put John Quill in those situations, it then Alyssa Thomas has to take a backseat. So you, you you might gain something, but you also take something away that's been key for you in this play and you know in the playoffs and and getting them there. So I, I hear what you're saying, but you you touched on something that that I want to bring up. You talked about Alyssa Thomas and her being so effective with shooting and without shooting. Can you just talk a little bit more in depthly about what I mean? We've gotten a lot of attention. We saw Holly Rowe and Rebecca Lobo do a little breakdown of her spin move, which was like straight out of NBA Street. Um, but talk to me a little bit. I mean, she's so effective without even shooting. Yeah. Well, I, the biggest backbreaker for a lot of players um, in the WNBA or NBA or even high-level college basketball is is overthinking. Um, so, you know, a lot of what I do is, throughout the year I'll do film breakdowns for for my clients and and just slow the game down for them right make make sure they're not overthinking it and with Alyssa with her two torn labrums she has no choice but to play one way right she's not she's not thinking am I open for the shot do I need to drive do I need to move it she's just playing to what she knows she can do um, so I think it, it takes one step of the decision-making process out for, and it's simplified the game for, um, and, you know, she's at her best when she's, when she's getting downhill and, and making plays. Um, so I think that's actually been, you know, beneficial for, her, and I think, you know, hopefully she can, you know, I don't know what the deal is with her shoulders. Hopefully she can eventually get those healthy and, and expand her game a little bit, but, you know, anytime you can simplify the game, that's, 
that's obviously going to work in your advantage. And I think that's what she's done. Well, I, I have to ask as somebody who talk, talk to me about what having that type of injury does to a player of her style, not just in the sense of what you just said, where it's like, Oh, it, it kind of simplifies what she's able to do. But for, for those of us who don't know, maybe what that type of injury does to your shooting form or your dribbling or like, what does that affect? Well, you know, the two biggest things, honestly, with, with shooting and rhythm um, is, is the flow of your shot. And it, it you know, the, for you having hips and shoulders that are flexible and able to move and strong, those are actually the two biggest parts of, of shooting mechanics and, and keeping a fluid motion. Um, so when you take one or two of those away, it, it's going to be extremely difficult and you're not going to be able to do it. So, um, you know, with her, it's when, when you don't have shoulder movement or function or strength, it's, it's nearly impossible. And that's why you see, you know, her shot the way it is. It's, it's flat because she doesn't have the, the shoulder flexibility or strength to, to get the ball in the air. Um, so I think that's what's, that's really what's holding her back. So I, I have to ask, uh, it was a hot topic in the NBA over, over the years. I think only like two players have ever done it. Uh, she has struggled. Alyssa Thomas has struggled from the free throw line. Are, are you in the camp of when you like at a certain point, if your percentage dips below, move on over to Granny Smith style shooting? Because I, I just personally don't get why more players who don't have a great free throw percentage don't do that. <laughs> um, I don't know because it it's, you know, a lot of it is mental and a lot of it is being okay with the way that it looks like getting, getting over the embarrassment of shooting a granny style free throw like um you know obviously i think uh, rick barry is the one that made made it famous um and i think he actually had a, a son or or something like that at, at florida a couple years ago that shot granny free throws um but i you know actually her free throws have been fine she's been at you know, what 10 for 12 and in, in the finals so you know i wouldn't i wouldn't change anything with her i think it's it just is what it is with her injury so um, in her instance, I would not. Um, now, if you're talking about, you know, someone else in the NBA, maybe, you know, I think it just depends on the, the personality and the mindset of, of that player. So uh, I'm going to put you on blast real quick. Do you think Connecticut can pull out a win and force a game five in D.C.? Um, no, <laughs> no, I don't. I, I in of course, it's. It's no disrespect towards them at all. I think, you know, the whole role player stuff has got extremely out of control. I mean, they have a they have a great core of players, and I think they're going to be back next year. And uh, but I think Washington being, you know, they're the best offense that we've ever seen. And I I think the only reason that they didn't win game two was kind of the shell shock of being without Elena for every you know, the entire game, basically. Uh, but they still had a chance. I mean, it was a three-point game with, what, you know, three and a half, four minutes left in that game. Um, so I think, actually, like, Washington, what we don't think about is you got you have to be a little bit fortunate and lucky to win a championship. And, you know, Elena's injury, obviously, is not part of that. But um, if you think about, like, Emma coming late at forced. Uh, other players like Hawkins and, and Sanders, uh, 
to kind of take an expanded role. And then when she got back, they were confident in, in their abilities of what they could do. Um, same with Tolliver going down. Then Natasha Cloud had to really step up. Um, and now she's playing with, you know, supreme confidence. So I think every single player on that team is kind of clicking um, at, at an all-time high. And, and Elaine is going to play. And just having her out there and having her presence, it, it's a calming effect on the entire team. And it, it doesn't matter if Elaine is at 50% or 100%. She's going to require a ton of attention every time she has the ball because you can't just sit there and be like, oh, she's hurt, so we don't have to give her as much attention. She's going to require just as much as if she was healthy. So um, it takes pressure off everyone. So I think that I think that Washington takes it um, now if, if John Quell Jones gets going early and she gets touches early. You never know. But I think that, that Washington's just – just too good offensively and I think that with how good their offense is um, their defense is is right up there with it with with Atkins and and Cloud and and Sanders I think it's probably the most under talked about defensive player best defensive player on that team um, so you know they, there's no real weak weak spots um, so I, I see them taking taking this game and taking the series yeah, I agree with you. I mean, also, I, I like the way you, you referred to it as shell shock because, you know, there was Holly Rowe was talking about how in the in the huddles at at timeouts and, and at the stops of the quarters or whatever, you know, Natasha Cloud was quiet. Uh, Christy Tolliver, who's normally chatting it up, was quiet. Everybody in that in that in that huddle, which is normally a very vibrant, talkative huddle, as we all know, uh, was dead silent. And, you know, throughout the whole season, we've seen how this team really struggles not necessarily like with the play. They still play at a high level when Elena's gone, but it's that confidence that they lose when she's gone. So in game three, in game four, sorry, uh, no, game three, when she came out, the whole time I'm sitting there and, you know, she plays for a couple minutes and runs to the back. Everyone thought she ran to the locker room to get worked on. Uh, you know, was she out? Whatever. It turns out she's just bite, biking on the, on the little elliptical back there or whatever, trying to keep her back warm. Um, and to me, I'm sitting there and I'm going, that's all you need to do. If I'm right. Elena, right. you you just need to show up for a little bit, put your face on there, give your team the confidence. Okay. Maybe you do that again out the half, but honestly, that's all it takes. And that it has got to be a huge confidence booster for Washington, just to know that all it really takes is Elena to be out there on the court for a few minutes to give the confidence for all these other players. Um, I mean, everything, I, I love to disagree with my guests, but everything you said, uh, as far as like, you know, Natasha Cloud has really grown throughout this season. That was one of my concerns coming into the finals. Big fan of her as a person. But if you look back at last year's finals, I mean, she got worked and, and she wasn't playoff cloud. Right. Uh, all these players are really, really stepping up. Talk to me besides Emma, Christy uh, and Natasha and obviously Elena. Which player? Because we, we do a Winsider clutch player of the game. So for DC, we always like to stay away from, from the big names if we can. Um, who do you think is going to be the clutch player of the game? Um, I think if you're not going with you know the main core of players, I think someone that's going to step up. So like, for instance, uh, Hawkins had a, had a huge game last game. She stepped up with 16 off the bench. Um, I think Ariel Atkins gets gets going again tonight. Uh, she had that huge game in game one. She played great uh, in the finals last year. Uh, so I think she's due uh, for, for a big night. Uh, she puts so much pressure on on the defense when she's aggressive. And I think she's another player that, 
that she's kind of got sped up a little bit, especially last game. She got a little bit out of her element. So I think hopefully going back, watching the film, slowing it down um, and simplifying it is going to help her. Uh, so I see her having a big game. I appreciate it. And uh, real quick, tell the folks before we sign off for the day where they can uh, find you online, social media, and uh, all that jazz. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm primarily through Twitter and, and Instagram is probably my biggest tool in terms of teaching of uh, you can see exactly who I'm working with and what I'm working uh, with them on uh, is Alex Bazell, uh, B-A-Z-Z-E-L-L 24. That's my handle on Instagram and Twitter. So you can find me there. Wow, you're lucky you got both of those. No one else apparently has your name. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, you know, speaking of that, sorry to keep you a little bit longer. I just had to think of something. I saw your video where you and uh, Mello were debating the travel. And yep. so flip it over to the WNBA side. I don't know if you saw the playing question because I didn't have a chance to send it to you before. But to end the half in game three, Christy Tolliver does a jump step, holds it, then you know, spins around and does a double step to hit that, ha- the you know, that deep shot. In your mind, travel, no travel on that play. I think actually it was a travel um, because I think her, her pivot foot was actually established. Um, now, if she were to take like, for instance, one dribble right, left from there and then step through and shot it, I think it's, it's obviously totally legal. But um, I think it was a travel, but, you know, the – the only issue is I don't think there's a clear understanding with all the new moves that have been incorporated, especially from the perimeter on timing up, picking the ball up to shoot and getting away with maybe an extra, you know, an extra step or two, which I, which I actually teach the move that, that she shoots all the time uh, where she pushes the ball out to the left and then lets it go. Um, I actually teach that move. So that that's totally legal. But I think once you add that step through, then it becomes a travel. But again, that's, that's why I'm not refereeing. There's there's people that, that do that at a high level that know a lot more than I do. So <laughs> I would call it a travel, though. All right. Well, I, I had to get your take on it. So uh, as we always say, we believe the players of the W and its community deserve the same in-depth analysis and respect that men's sports receive on a daily basis. Please consider joining our Patreon community to help support us in the hard work we do.